The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. This summer we have been walking through the Proverbs. We've acknowledged that in our everyday lives, you and I are in desperate need of wisdom. Wisdom for how to act rightly in the midst of all of life's complexity. And the Proverbs is a book that offers wisdom. Wisdom for everyone. But, but what does it mean to be wise? What does it mean to be wise? Well, according to the Proverbs, the wise person is the ethical person. It's the person that lives righteously and justly in the world. Uh, For the Proverbs, the wise person foundationally is the person who fears the Lord. And we have seen that fear of the Lord is this state of awe and, and wonder and trust and humility before God. Um, that is the necessary starting point for wisdom. That is the path that we must go on if we are to be wise. And we've also seen from the Proverbs that the wise person uh, is what we may call today the emotionally intelligent person. The wise person, according to the Proverbs, is the emotionally intelligent person. Um, Now, emotional intelligence is different from what we often mean when we say that a person is intelligent. Um, Emotionally intelligent people know how to say the right thing at the right time. Uh, They do the right thing at the right time. It's it's not that they don't have any emotions, but they can control their emotions, and they can express them in a proper way, in a controlled way, in a way that builds up others. So, my hunch this morning is that if you're anything like me, an area that you might confess to having a low EQ in is with anger. With anger. We desperately need wisdom, not only with our own anger, but in dealing with others' anger towards us. With others' anger towards us. Well, the Proverbs talk a lot about anger. There's no denying that. But what do they reveal to us about anger? What does it reveal to us about our anger and how we're to deal with others' anger towards us? Well, I want to start this morning by getting us to see that according to the Proverbs, the wise person is someone who is slow to anger. I think this is important. The wise person is the person that is slow to anger. Uh, The wise person is not the person that has no anger. um, And they're not the person that has blow-up anger or hot-headedness. But they're slow to anger. Listen to Proverbs 14, 29. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper 
exalts folly. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Well, this proverb backs up what we've been saying about emotional intelligence. Here's the proverb's basic message. Uh, the ability to control your anger and express it at the right time shows wisdom, while to act impulsively or to blow up without any reflection leads to foolishness, leads to destruction. It doesn't say that the wise person has no anger. It says they're slow to anger. Uh, Proverbs 15.8, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Proverbs 16.32, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Once again, the wise person is not the person with no anger or blow-up anger, but slow anger. So for, for us to be able to understand how that's true and, and what that even looks like in our day-to-day -day lives, we must think deeply about anger this morning. We must think deeply about our own anger this morning. Um, and so to do that, I want us to look at four things about anger. Four things about anger. The essence of anger, the distortion of anger, the healing of anger, and the end date of anger. All right, first, the essence of anger. The essence of anger. Dr. David Pallison was the executive director of the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation. He was a counselor, author, and the editor of the Journal of Biblical Counseling. Tragically, he passed away last month. But he has a great book titled, Good and Angry. And in that book, Good and Angry, uh, Pallison pushes us to get to the essence of anger. Uh, anger's DNA. And he argues, I think very convincingly, that the problems that arise from anger, rage, uh, passive aggressiveness, personal attacks, uh, bitterness, conflict, they're not the essential DNA of anger. Interesting. He says they're mutations, uh, corruptions. So then you might ask, well, for Pallison, what is anger then? Well, he says that anger at its core simply expresses, I'm against that. I'm against that. It, anger is an active stance you take to oppose something that you as assess as both important and wrong. Here's anger's core logic. That matters. It's wrong. It displeases me. I'm against it. I should change it, remove it, destroy it. <laughs> That's anger's core logic. And you and I as human beings are wired with a capacity to react with this displeasure towards real evil and injustices. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing to look at wrongs. It's a good thing to look at injustices. It's a good thing to look at those and say, that matters, and it's wrong. It displeases me, and I am against it. I should change it. 
And you know, it makes sense that you and I are wired this way as human beings because we're created in the image of a God who is what? Slow to anger. Slow to anger is an attribute of God. In Exodus 33, there's this weird scene in which Moses begs God, God, show me your glory. Show me your beauty. And God speaks to Moses. That's the revelation. And he says, the Lord, the Lord of God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love for thousands. Slow to anger. What's the glory that's revealed to Moses? It's God's character, who he is, the, the beauty, the beauty of who he is. And he is slow to anger. Slow to anger. Now, Tim Keller is a uh, pastor who did so much of his ministry in New York City. And he, he, had, he observed that this is such a hang-up for New Yorkers uh, who want a God of love, but not a God of anger. Right? And I think this is true for more than just New Yorkers. This is something that I've wrestled with, and I'm from Georgia. Hey, y'all. You know? I mean, I think this is something we struggle with uh, in modernity as Westerners. Um, but I think Keller makes a very astute observation. Uh, he says that you can't have a God of love and not have a God of anger. Did you get that? You can't have a God of love and not have a God of anger. Why? Because if you never get angry about anything, then you don't really love anything. If you never get angry about anything, then you don't really love anything. I mean, think about this with me. Uh, if I don't get angry at a threat seeking to destroy my wife's life, then you would say that I'm not being a loving husband. Right? Parents, it's the same with your kids. If you don't get angry at a threat at your kids, right? then you're not a loving parent. We, we know this. Um, Keller says when he talks about anger that in one degree or another, anger is our response to whatever endangers something we love. We're talking about anger's uncorrupted origin here. We're talking about anger at creation, if you will. Uh, anger is actually a form of love. Anger, this is interesting, I've never thought about it like this before, but anger is love in motion to deal with the threat to someone or something we truly care about. Say that one more time. Anger is love in motion to deal with the threat to someone or something we truly care about. Do you, do you want to see what you really love? You want to see what you really think is valuable? What do you get really angry about? What do you get really angry about? You know, it's interesting, when we look at the Gospels, meek and mild Jesus is not apathetic to the needs of this world, but he cares deeply. He gets righteously angry. Anger without sin. In, in Mark 3, before Jesus heals the man with the withered, uh, the man, excuse me, with the withered hand, uh, it says Jesus looked at the Pharisees with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. In John 11, faced with Lazarus and with the sister's grief, Jesus is successively angered, distressed, grief-stricken, and indignant at death loss and suffering. We, we, we could say that Jesus is the embodiment 
of the Proverbs command to be slow to anger. He reveals to us God. He is God in the flesh. He reveals to us the character of God, and we worship a triune God who is slow to anger, and that is a good and beautiful thing. Because you can't have a God who's loving if you don't have a God that gets angry. He gets angry. Anger in its essence is a good thing. Okay, so you may say, all right, Brad, I'm with you. Uh, point made. But the reality is the majority of the anger that you and I feel and have directed towards us is not a righteous anger, but what we may call a sinful anger that is very destructive to life. So where does anger go wrong? If anger in its essence is a good thing, then where does it go wrong? How does it get distorted? Well, thank you for asking. Because that leads me to my second point. Sin's distortion of anger. Sin's distortion of anger. But sin, as I've said before, sin is like a cancer. Uh, it infects everything that it touches. And when it touches something as powerful a good as anger, it deforms it into a very destructive, powerful evil. And in the scriptures, the Proverbs especially, are well aware of the damage that sinful anger or the hot-tempered person can cause. Um, it speaks to the destructive power of anger. It's, it's foolishness. Look at Proverbs 29, verse 22. A man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. Anger leaves a wake of destruction behind it. We've experienced this. Proverbs 21:19. One commentator translates this proverb, it is better to live in a desolate land than with a contentious and angry woman. I think we could also say angry man, Kenyon. <laughs> Kenyon said amen. That's why I said Kenyon. Okay. I don't know if you all heard that. Uh, what's the proverb saying? Uh, the proverb is well aware of the destructive power that anger has in our most intimate of relationships. Right. Um, Pallison in his book points out that ultimately this destructive anger that causes so much damage is a heart issue. It, it's a heart issue. At its root, it's a heart issue. Um, he says that when anger goes astray, it says something about how we're going astray inside. And it says something about who we think the center of the universe is. But when, when anger gets destructive with a temper or a complaining or, or bitterness or with an all-out verbal assault, uh, you don't just need a technique to calm yourself down, which that's a good thing and that's helpful. You don't just need your circumstances to change, although you may need your circumstances to change. You don't just need other people to change, although other people may need to change. What ultimately needs to change for you? Your core motives and desires must change. This is what Paulison says. Um, he says that motives uh, are our core values. 
our core commitments. Um, motives reveal our heart. They reveal what we crave, what we trust, uh, what we hate, and, and what we love. The early church father, Augustine, I think would agree with Pallison here um, when it comes to the root of sinful anger. Uh, with Augustine, he believed that the problem was not that you and I have strong desires. He says, it's not a bad thing. He says, the problem with our desires is not that they're strong, but the problem with our desires is that they're not properly ordered. They're not rightly ordered. Um, when our first love, when, when your first love and delight is God, you are rightly able to enjoy the beautiful things in this world, these beautiful gifts from God, uh, friends, marriage, raising children, work, play. All these are gifts from God to be enjoyed. But when we worship these things, if we make them ultimate, then we will be filled with anger, frustration, and bitterness when they don't fulfill us in the way that we expect. Um, these good desires are not the problem. Well, what's the problem then, Brad? The problem is when good desires become ultimate desires. When good desires become ultimate desires. Um, it's, it's crazy how in, in marriage, uh, many arguments are patterned. Uh, they're, they're triggered by the same things. It's almost like you and your spouse had a conversation that said, okay, just to be clear, 6 p.m. on Sunday in the kitchen, we are going to have an argument, all right? Put it on your calendar, make sure it's clear because that's going to happen, all right? Um, and to be vulnerable with you this morning, uh, one argument that my wife and I will get in happens in the evenings. It's the end of the day, right? At this point, I've had enough of humanity, and I'm ready to lay back. I'm ready to disconnect and watch TV. Meanwhile, for my wife, this is the first time of the day that we're alone together. And her desire is not to disconnect, but to connect. All right? Uh, you can see where this is headed. Frustrated remark here, the sarcastic remark there, then the fatal blow. You always blank, right? And the next thing you know, she's accusing me of being the laziest person she's ever met, and I'm accusing her of being the most unreasonable person on the planet, right? It's a downward spiral. Now, what caused the quarrel? The self-pitying, the self-righteous sense of offense. Y'all might have your own opinions. Um, you can kind of see where you'd fall in the argument with how you're responding to this. Uh, but what, what causes this? Well, at base, what happened was I was ruled by my desire for rest and relaxing. That became an ultimate desire. And my wife was ruled by her desire for connection and intimacy. Now, both of these desires that we had, a desire for rest, right? That's a good thing. A desire for intimacy with your spouse, that's a good thing. But what happened? Those good desires became ultimate desires. And we both said, we have to have this now, no matter what, right? Was selfish, 
desires. James 4, verse 1 and 2, what causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? James sees the root of arguing, conflict, division among the Christians due to distorted desires. They make us think, what do I want? And our anger says, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get that. To get that. Right? Now, there is much room in this conversation about anger to talk about our struggles with anger having to do with our unique temperament or our past wounds or how anger was modeled to us, how we grew up seeing anger in action, right? There's much room for that conversation. We should definitely be thinking about that. We should be analyzing that. We should be having conversations, maybe even conversations with a counselor about that. Definitely. But ultimately, for Pallison, for Augustine, for, for Scripture, anger becomes destructive because of disordered desires, because of misplaced loves. Good things become ultimate things, and our loves are distorted. And therefore, our anger is distorted. Right? All right. So if we're on the same page, and we agree, which we may not, <laughs> that the root issue of our anger is our distorted desires or our heart, then how do these distorted desires begin to be transformed? How can our anger begin to be transformed? How can we be a people that are slow to anger? Leads me to my next point, redemption, the healing of anger. Redemption, the healing of anger. The good news this morning is that the gospel, the good news of the gospel, is that God doesn't leave us to ourselves, but he comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ, not only to forgive our sin, yes, but to what? To transform us, to transform our affections and our desires, to heal our hearts so that our loves may be properly ordered towards him and then out towards creation. He, he comes so that we may love him above all things. So in Christ, if we are to have wisdom with anger, and if our sinful anger is to be transformed, then we must begin where the Proverbs begin. And where do the Proverbs begin? With the fear of the Lord with the fear of the Lord. Now, why do I say this? Because you and I, in Christ, must come before the Lord in trust and humility. We must come before him with an acknowledgement of who he is and who we are, because it's only in that posture, it's only in that posture that anger can be ultimately healed, that the root of our anger can be attacked. Now, this may sound painfully simplistic, but you and I must continually, daily, bring our anger before the Lord. We must bring our anger before the Lord. We must bring our anger before the Lord in confession. In confession. Listen to, to Proverbs 28, 13 and 14. Whoever 
conceals his, his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Now, you and I, because of our union with Jesus Christ, can boldly bring our entire selves before God with all our selfishness, with all our frustrations, with all our bitterness in the midst of conflict. We can go to God knowing in confidence that even with all the mess, even with all the frustration, even with all our language, we will be met with mercy. We will be met with kindness. We will be met with love. And you know what that means for you and me? We can be honest about our anger. We can be honest about our anger. Um, we can address it. When Christian counselor Ed Welch was asked, how can I experience freedom from my anger problem? Do you know what his response was? The question was, how can I experience freedom from my anger problem? You know what his first response was? He said, praise God that you're able to admit that there's a problem. Because one of the hardest steps to receiving healing from anger is being able to admit that it's an issue. Why? Because sinful Anger never points the finger at itself. Sinful anger never points the finger at itself. It points the finger at everything but itself. It makes excuses and it blames everything outside of itself. It blames another person. It blames a situation. It says that's the issue. But you and I know better, don't we? We don't need to self-justify. We don't, we don't need to make excuses to maintain our self-worth because our worth has been placed in Jesus Christ. Our belonging to him is where we find ourselves. And so we can admit our brokenness. And there is such a freedom in that. Okay. Secondly, not only come before the Lord in confession, but we also must come before the Lord in uh, what I want to say is vulnerability and honesty. We must come before the Lord in vulnerability and honesty. But we must bring all of our thoughts and emotions to him. That's, that's what I want to get at. We must bring all of our thoughts and emotions to him. Uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, right? Listen to this proverb in the context of anger. We all know it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Uh, that lean not on your own understanding is very hard when we're angry. Right? Um, when we're angry, there is a lot going on. Right? There's a lot happening. Right? Uh, physiologically, we become tense. Blood surges to our extremities, priming us for action. Adrenaline goes into the bloodstream. Muscles tighten in our neck and shoulders. Our stomach churns. Our breathing becomes more rapid. We start sweating. Emotionally, we feel ticked off, frustrated, annoyed. We might even feel desperate, hopeless, or 
fearful. We all react in different ways, right? We may yell, breathe heavy, stomp away. We hit inanimate objects. We complain. We argue. We verbally assault someone. Or maybe we don't do that. Maybe that's not how we respond. Maybe we're calm, cool, right? Uh, we get really quiet. We, we roll our eyes. We become very sarcastic. We become cold, cruel, calculated. It's like we're the villain in a James Bond movie, you know, just sitting there petting our cat, right? <laughs> we all have different reactions. But no matter our individual reactions, uh, we're all having an intense conversation with ourselves, right? Uh, our mind becomes a courtroom where we are the innocent victim and the offended plaintiff we are also the lead investigator, the sheriff, and the DA putting forth irrefutable charges and evidence. We provide eyewitness testimony, and then we become the judge, the jury, the jailer, and the hangman, ready to administer capital punishment. And all the while, we believe we are thinking so clearly, don't we? Uh, but we aren't. There is no justice other than vigilante justice in this courtroom. Uh, Pallison notes in his book that angry people always have conversations with the wrong people. Uh, we either talk with our irrational selves in the moment, or we vent and gossip and slander with a friend. Not to say that it's bad to talk with a friend when you're angry, but gossip and slander definitely not productive. Um, or the worst thing happens, right? What do we do? We let the person that has offended us just have it, right? Really have it. And we dump everything on to them. But for you and I, our hot-headed anger, our sinful anger begins to simmer when we bring it before who? God. Not the God of our imagination, not the God that we've made up in our head, but the God of the scriptures. Um, as Christians, we're not to stuff these emotions. That's what some of us do. We stuff these emotions and these feelings that we're having, and we don't express them, we don't talk about it, and then we naively believe that it's not affecting us. Right? That's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is what I do, called dumping. And it's where you let whoever the other person is really have it, right? Um, as Christians, we're not to stuff, we're not to dump. Well, what are we to do then? We're to bring everything before God. He can handle it. The crazy thing is, he actually desires us to do it. In that moment of anger, in that moment of irrationality, bring all your crazy thoughts before God. God, I hate them. God, I can't stand them. God, they are crazy. God, this is stupid. God, this is unfair. This is ridiculous. In the Psalms, we even see anger expressed, with, uh, expressed at God. Bring it before God. Bring it before the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and see how he will transform your desires. See how he will transform your affections. Now, remember, what is the root of anger? It's our motives. 
It's our desires, right? It's these core beliefs. And so when we are angry, we need to go before God and start asking questions. What story am I telling myself right now? What do I believe right now about myself? What do I believe about the world? What do I believe about this other person? Why am I so angry right now? What am I attacking? What am I defending? And when we come before God, an amazing thing happens in the midst of our anger. We realize that we're not God. We realize that we're not God and that our anger does not justify destruction. We're really letting others have it. No, we go to God with our story, with our courtroom, and he gives us a different story. He gives us a story in which we aren't in the center, but Jesus Christ is in the center. It's not the story of our wrongs, but it's the story of God's grand narrative of redemption and what he's doing. He will meet us there. Bring it all before him. Bring it all before him. And in so doing this, something, something happens to us as we do this pattern day in and day out. God begins to transform us into being a people that responds to anger the way he responds to anger. God transforms us to be a people that responds to anger the way he responds to anger. Listen to Proverbs 15:1 with me. A soft answer turns away wrath but a harsh word stirs up anger. Be not a witness against your neighbor without cause, and do not deceive with your lips. Listen to this in the context of anger. I do not say I will do to him as he has done to me. That's what anger tells us. I will pay the man back for what he has done. Proverbs 25, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Now, I confess this morning that my social media cocktail of choice is Twitter. But recently, a, f- a famous female Christian leader I follow was, in my mind, unjustly attacked by a random person out of nowhere. That's the beautiful thing about Twitter. Now anybody in the world can insult you 24-7 at a moment's notice. Um, I was getting angry just reading it. I had so many thoughts in my head. Oh, if I could tweet this, and if I wasn't a pastor, I would tweet that. Right, I'm having all these thoughts. Um... And the tweet that was attacking her was filled with rage and insults, and they weren't true. Um, Now, some would say, don't even respond to this tweet, right? Uh, Which the Proverbs would say, yeah, sometimes sometimes that's the right thing to do. Don't respond to it. But here, the leader responded. She didn't respond by attacking back. She didn't respond with sarcasm, which happens a lot on Twitter. She acknowledged the person's concern, thanked them for caring about such an important issue, and asked them to clarify what they were so upset about. 
The person responded again with an attack. They didn't back down. The Christian leader again responded graciously. And after a while with the conversation, it ended with the attacker saying, okay, sorry for attacking you. I misunderstood your position. And the Christian leader said, thank you for the apology. I forgive you. Wow. Talk about a counter-cultural moment on Twitter. Now, remember with me, the Proverbs aren't promises. The Christian leader did not have the promise that this altercation would end with an apology. But nonetheless, in the moment, do you see what they did? They responded to the rage with a soft voice. First proverb that we read. They, they did not say, oh, he attacked me, and so I'm going to give him a taste of his own medicine. His insults were bushly. He has no idea what's coming to him. They didn't do that. What did they do? They did something I think is really important that I want us to think about. They absorbed the anger. They, they absorbed the anger. Right? I can remember getting in arguments with, with my parents when I was in high school, and there would come a moment where I would say, you hate me, and you haven't done anything for me. Now, that's slightly untrue. <laughs> right? um, but as I look back to it, I can see now my mom or my father, not always, but many times, not lash back, Right? I mean, they've had so many years of training and experience, they could totally tear me apart, right? They didn't. What'd they do? They absorbed the anger. They got down on my level, and they talked to me. They talked to me, and it totally calmed my anger. Right? Totally calmed my anger. It calmed the rage. So, so Shades, how... How do you and I become the type of people that can absorb anger from others and respond, not with anger, not giving them what we think they deserve, but responding in humility, in, in patience, in compassion, and in kindness, even when we're right? Oh, because that's the hardest time. Even when we're right. How can we do that? We can do that because while we were enemies of God, showing no kindness or compassion to him, Christ died for us, forgave us, and bound himself to us, lavishing us with the riches of his grace. On the cross, Jesus not only absorbed our sinful anger towards God and humanity, but he also absorbed the righteous anger of his Father meant for us. He absorbed it all on himself. In and of ourselves, this type of sacrificial, merciful, forgiving love is not possible, but you and I are no longer our own. That's not our identity. We are a new creation in Christ, created after his image, being conformed to his likeness by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is, it is only when we look at the cross that we can be a people that are able to absorb the anger of the world and respond with compassion and kindness, right? But even going further than that, because what does the proverb say? The proverb says to do what? Something that sounds so insane, to bless our enemy to feed them if they're hungry, to give them water if they're thirsty. So it's not just absorbing it, it's, it's going beyond and, and blessing. Whew. If we are to do this, we must fix our eyes not on our own rights, but on the cross of Jesus Christ. 
We must not tell ourselves the narrative where you and I are king in the center of the world. We must tell ourselves the narrative of Jesus' kingship, his rule, and his reign. Only then can we a people be a people that not only absorbs this anger, but goes a step further by blessing our enemies. Because that's what Jesus has done for us. Now, my last point, the last thing that I want us to see about anger this morning is I want us to look at anger's end date. Anger's end date. Um, I think we all know, no matter how old we are and what our circles are, that we live in a culture of outrage. Now, we, we live in a culture of outrage. Uh, sometimes this, this outrage horrifies us, Sometimes it, it entertains us. Um, but we live in a culture where destructive actions are constantly being justified in the name of anger. When the response is, I'm sorry, I'm just angry, let's be clear, that's not an apology. That's an excuse. That's justifying the destruction that the person is left in their wake by pointing to their anger and saying, well, I just can't control it. But the Proverbs would say otherwise. The Proverbs would say that the wise person is the person who can control their anger, who can express it in an appropriate way that is not destructive but constructive. The expression of this, this righteous anger is not at odds with anything that Ed said last week about the tongue. It's not at odds uh, with control over one's emotions. It's not. I think the most powerful display, I wasn't planning on saying this, but I feel like it's appropriate. I feel like the most glorious display of righteous anger that I've seen in recent days is the witness of Rachel Den Hollander, a Christian. Rachel Den Hollander was the first victim of Larry Nasser, the U.S. gymnastics trainer that sexually assaulted over hundreds of girls. Rachel Den Hollander was the first victim to go public. And I would encourage us all today to go to YouTube and listen to the testimony that she gave in court. It is a beautiful display of righteous anger. She talks about the need for justice. She talks about the failure of the U.S. gymnastics organization in defending little girls. You can see the anger because that's something to get angry about. She speaks about the justice that Larry deserves for the safety of these little girls. She speaks about putting him away. And right next to that, in her testimony, she also speaks the gospel and says, Larry, even someone like you whose desires are so distorted and so wrong, even you, if you repent, can receive forgiveness because of Jesus Christ. And she said, you can go listen to it. She said, I offer you this forgiveness. What an example of the gospel 
in our society. What a beautiful picture from our sister, Rachel Din Hollander. That is a righteous anger. You might say, how can Rachel do that? Where does she get the power to do that? Well, we've talked about how she gets the power to do that from the cross, but not only the cross, she gets the power to do that from her future, from her future. Um, anger and injustices have an end date. It has an end date because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You and I know that there is a day where there will be no need for anger because all injustices, all wrongs, all evil will be dealt with. It will be removed. So Christian, hear today that, that child slavery has an end date. Sinful anger has an end date. Violence has an end date. Uh, political corruption has an end date. War has an end date. All of these things have an end date because Jesus is making all things new. And one day he will remove every reason to be angry, righteously angry in its totality. That is the future. And anger or a culture of outrage, what does it come from? It comes from a culture of fear. It comes from a culture of hopelessness. Well, church, we have hope. We have such hope because we know the future. We know where the future is headed. So may that empower us to deal with our anger, to address the wounds that cause our anger, and to be a people who are slow to anger, people that go into the world with a righteous anger, the anger of Rachel Den Hollander, and anger that is just, but is merciful and compassionate and kind. May we do that for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.